Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. This is session number eight of the Fundamental Beliefs of Conservative Friends, What We Are Conserving. And I'm just going to go through a quick summary of what we have been doing. In the past sessions, we've talked about the fear of the Lord, the fear of God being holding this uh, reverent awe in terms of our relationship to God and ourselves, the difference there, the vast difference. We've talked about inward and outward and how those two words have a huge importance in the history of friends in talking about various aspects of all of reality, spiritual and physical, both an inner and an outer, an inward and an outward aspect. We've talked about one specific inward concept, and that was the kingdom of God, this state of God, also called the kingdom of heaven, also known as eternal life and life. We've talked about true repentance, not just feeling remorse and sorrow for what we've done in terms of sinning, but really the whole need for a total paradigm shift in thinking, a complete transformation of our ways of looking at ourselves, at God, and at the world, which then will lead to a transformation in how we act with God's help. We've talked about how that is partially done through denying the self, to use the King James language, that is renouncing the ego and picking up the cross. We spoke about the inward cross of Christ, taking up that form of execution, of crucifying all one's worldly addictions, one's ways of doing things that these worldly gods that we pay attention to, whether they're addictions or whatever it may be that leads us away from worshiping the true God. And then what we did and will continue today is to read from this excerpt from Thomas Evans, the Tract Association website, where you can see even now the selection there from Thomas Evans by clicking on digital materials, then history, and then keep reading if you want to follow along. Uh, as we go through that, because that concise account really covers much of what I hope to go over and continue today. All right. I'm going to read again from the 15th proposition of Robert Barclay's An Apology for the True Christian Divinity, which in modern English would be a defense of the truly Christian theology. And this is proposition 15. And I'm modernizing English again because I think it really says the whole focus of what a true religion should be doing, which is to help you change, to become more what you are meant to be in terms of your relationship to God and the world. Okay, and I'll modernize the English. Seeing the chief goal of all true religion is to redeem men, to liberate men from the spirit and vain, empty conduct of this world and to lead them into inward communion and inner union with God, before whom, if we fear always, if we are in reverent awe always, we are accounted happy. Therefore, all the vain customs and habits of the world, both in word and deed, are to be rejected 
and abandoned by those who come to this fear of the Lord. And he goes on a bit to give examples in his time. And all these things man has invented in his degenerate state to feed his pride, his egotism, his arrogance in the vain pomp and glory of this world, as well as unprofitable plays, recreations, sports, games, which are invented to pass away the precious time and divert the mind from the witness of God in the heart, in the conscience, in one's consciousness, and from the living sense of his fear, of that reverential awe. And from that gospel spirit with which Christians ought to be leavened. And which leads into seriousness, gravity, and godly fear. In which as we abide, as we dwell, the blessing of the Lord is felt to attend us in those actions in which we are necessarily engaged. In order to take care of the sustenance of the outward man, the physical man. Last week I... At one point, remembered a passage from this Anglican archbishop from the beginning of the 20th century. His name was William Temple. And I'd like to read this little section here. Again, he was not a Quaker, but this is a volume of commentary on the gospel according to John. But what he says in these couple of paragraphs, a lot of this is very similar to a traditional Quaker understanding. And when I first read this, I was really surprised to read it because a lot of it says roughly the same thing. Maybe not using the exact words, but the understanding is there. So I'm going to read this to just give you an example. This is regarding the, the word of God, the word of God, which is a seed in everyone that is everyone. It may never go beyond the seed, but hopefully it does. It gets planted, it gets watered, nurtured, and grows. I'll be skipping part of this, but let me just begin here. From the beginning, the divine light has shown. This word is the light. Always it was coming into the world. Always it enlightened every man alive in his reason and conscience. Every check on animal lust felt by the primitive savage, every stimulation to a nobler life is God self-revealed within his soul. But God, in self-revelation, is the divine word. For precisely this is what that term means. What is constituted within that divine self-communication as one element composing it is the energy of life. That's life with a capital L. This is what urges all kinds of living things forward in their evolution. And this is what is fully and perfectly expressed in Christ. So it may be truly said that the conscience of the heathen man is the voice of Christ within him, though muffled by his ignorance. All that is noble in the non-Christian systems of thought or conduct or worship is the work of Christ upon them and within them. By the word of God, that is to say by Jesus Christ, Isaiah and Plato and Zoroaster and Buddha and Confucius, conceived and uttered such truths as they declared. There is only one divine light. Again, there is only one divine light, and every man in his measure is enlightened by it. Yet, this light is not recognized for what it is. 
if it were, its fuller shining would always be welcomed. But it is attributed by each tribe or group to some historic or legendary founder or pioneer of their own, so that each claims to have a monopoly of the light itself, when in fact each has only a few rays of that light, which needs all the wisdom of all the human traditions to manifest the entire compass of its spectrum. Moreover, it has to shine through veils of prejudice and obsession, so that even the rays received by each group among mankind are not clear and pure in the illumination which they give. So the light itself is unrecognized, and when it blazes out more fully, men refuse it, even though it is that by which they already walk. For these reasons, it is true both that Christ is indeed the desire of all nations, and yet that he is always more and other than men desire until they learn of him. To come to him is always an act of self-surrender as well as of self-fulfillment. It must be first experienced as self-surrender. Again, if you remember self-denying, denying the self, renouncing the ego. But there was one nation specially prepared for the reception of the light in its fullness. Israel had received the light in a measure so full as to be called its own home, its own people. Okay, I'll leave that there. I'll probably be talking more about that in the future. I don't know if there is any question at this moment. Henry, I recall reading in Fox and Pennington, I believe, too, that the least measure of the light was complete and full in and of itself. Yes, I remember that too. Okay. I, I recall, I think either one of them said the issue has to do with the recipient of it as to how much he can accept or, or take in at any given time. But the experience of the light is perfect. And right. in, in the least experience of it, there's still that complete perfection. Whereas I'm not sure that what you read affirms that. Right, and this is an Anglican, but yeah. I was kind of surprised at a lot of what he said. I don't want to go over that text because I'd rather speak on Quaker material. Okay. But I was kind of surprised that he too was saying something there that he recognized what this light is in some ways. The light of Christ, the, this illuminator, illumination. Okay, all right, let's go on to this concise account. I'm going to read through it again. We only got through, like I believe, the first paragraph. And after that, we'll start where we finished off last time. And I'll just go through some of these words and expressions because what we've been doing in the last several sessions is really talking about what's most essential. And that's this whole change in behavior and the whole change in our mindset to stop having an outward mind and develop an inward mind. As Fox would say, mind the heavenly light or mind the heavenly treasure, mind the light within, focus your mind on that light. Okay, I'll just read it through first again. This is a concise account of the Religious Society of Friends, commonly called Quakers, by Thomas Evans. A distinguishing trait in the character of the primitive friends was the earnestness with which they enforced, both by example and precept, the indispensable obligation of a life of holiness in the fear of God, 
While they felt the necessity of having a sound and firm belief in all the doctrines of the Christian religion as set forth in the Holy Scriptures, they were also convinced that unless this belief was carried out in the daily walk and conversation and accompanied by those fruits of the Spirit, which are the evidences of true faith, as well as the ornament of the Christian, it would be of little avail. Recognizing in its full extent the declaration, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, and the test laid down by the Savior of men, by their fruits shall ye know them, as well as his solemn words, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father which is in heaven. They were concerned to warn all against the delusive notion that men might live in sin and in the indulgence of their carnal wills and appetites, and yet be saved by a professed dependence on what the Lord Jesus Christ had graciously done in his flesh for the redemption of mankind. They were plain, practical, self-denying men and women, deeply and earnestly engaged to walk in the obedience of faith to all the requirements of the divine law, and their minds being enlightened from on high to see the true spiritual nature and the transforming effects of the religion of the gospel, they apprehended that many of its professors were resting their hopes of salvation on a mere ascent of the understanding to the truths recorded in the Holy Scriptures and in the compliance with outward ceremonies without bringing forth those good works which were before ordained that we should walk in them. The inward life of righteousness and the daily fear of God being the great object of their earnest concern and engagement, both for themselves and others, they called on their hearers to come home into their own hearts and examine in the light which Christ gives whether they were clean and pure or defiled and unholy. With no less earnestness, they pressed upon all the necessity of a close attention and obedience to the teachings of the spirit of truth in the heart as the great enlightener and sanctifier of man and his guide in things pertaining to salvation as the true light by which everyone might come to see his own state as seen by the searcher of hearts and be shown the way to come out of the thraldom of sin into the glorious liberty of the children of God. They invited men to come to and believe in Christ Jesus the Lord, not only as testified of in the Bible as the Redeemer, Propitiation, Mediator, and Intercessor with the Father for lost, fallen man, but also as he reveals himself in the heart by his Spirit as the true light, showing man his undone condition in the fall and the means by which he may be brought out of it by being born again of the Spirit and also as a swift witness against evil and a comforter for well-doing. Esteeming this knowledge as the very essence of true religion, they dwelt much upon it in their ministry and writings, and even in their dying sayings enjoined it on their hearers as of the first importance to all who hoped for salvation. Okay. Let's see, I think we left off in talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Is that correct? And those fruits of the Spirit are 
mentioned in Galatians 5.22, which says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. So these are the true clothes to use a biblical understanding. So often in the New Testament, clothing and words having to do with clothes have, have a lot to do with one's actions, one's deeds in life. And so often that they put in these that type of terminology referring to clothing. Henry, I'm sorry to interrupt. Could you, uh, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity. What were the other ones? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, okay. gentleness, and self-control. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's fine. No, no. Please, anyone, please do that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and, and so this was the whole focus that uh, you can, you can, you will know them. You will know a true Christian by how he acts, by his deeds, his actions, his works. And these are the true types of work that you should be seeing there that follow from, from these things. Uh, even in the sentence here where it says, they were also convinced that unless this belief was carried out by the daily walk, the daily conduct and conversation behavior, and accompanied by those fruits of the Spirit, which I just read, which are the evidence of a true faith. This is the true faith, as well as the ornament. Ornament meaning being adorned with something. Again, think of clothing of the true Christian. Having all those beliefs would be of little avail. What really matters is when the rubber hits the road, how are you acting? Behavior. Going on, we have here, recognizing in its full extent the declaration, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, this is from John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus says, he's, he's speaking to a leader of the Jews at that time, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night to talk to him. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the, month, the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. And I may as well read a couple more verses here. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This is an interesting passage because the translation here is only partially correct. 
in Greek, the word for wind is the same word for breath. And it's the same word that gets translated into English as spirit. The Hebrew word is ruach. And so the wind blows where it chooses. You can also translate this at the same time as the spirit goes where it chooses, where it wants. And you hear the sound of it. Just like you hear the, the sound of the wind. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. It's an inward kind of change, not an outward thing. Whereas if you think of wind as outward, but spirit as inward, you get the two senses that are being conveyed there in verse 8. And this is what's being said in this passage. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into that state of God, either before or after life. And also the test laid down by the Savior of men, by their fruits shall ye know them. Well, we just went through those fruits. You can tell a true Christian by how he's practicing and being an exemplar, an example of those fruits that we just read. And finally here, everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And that is from Matthew chapter 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. I think this is a very important warning to so many people in terms of self-deception, thinking they are something that they are not. It really takes a daily kind of introspection to really make sure that we are not hypocrites saying one thing but acting in a different way. I think over and over again in the history of Christianity, you see so many, even modern days on TV and radio, so many of these evangelists, and somehow they don't ring true. Well, Henry, I don't want to call it a problem, but typically when we talk about one's walk, you're, it's behavior. And yes. the entire list of fruits of the Spirit are inward uh, states, and they would be manifested as a style, I suppose, in behavior. But what about the kind, loving, faithful spouse of someone in desperate agonies who finally slips in in the night and pulls the trigger on a pistol and puts them out of their misery? Now, that could be done. That could be done in the most probably manifesting virtually every single one of the fruits of the Spirit. And it would still make the behavior itself problematic to most people. And so that when we talk about living in a way that manifests your spiritual condition, it's really hard to connect that. There's no simple way to get from what the inner state is in the behaviors. 
something to remember. We also should remember there is, well, among friends, among Quakers, uh, if we are good conservative Quakers, we do have a corporate body that can help us discern what is right and what is wrong. They too can be wrong. Obviously, when you look at the history of what happened with Quakers in the 19th century with all the breakups that happened one after another, everyone thinking they're doing the right thing, believing the right thing, and yet you see what had happened. I think what he's bringing up is the difference between a subjective wrong and an objective wrong. If I don't think I'm doing something wrong, and truly I don't think I'm doing something wrong, then I don't think I can be held guilty for that. However, perhaps the society will hold me guilty for that because it has a different understanding. And whether I'm right or they're right, I think we have to leave that up to God. But I hope as a corporate body, we come to the correct understandings of what is right. There's also this important thing that I haven't said much about it, but all of that I've read is really talking about humility. You know, that we need to uh, get off our pedestal that we know so much, get off our high horse, get down on the ground and be humble. God's in his heaven, we're on the earth here. We have this problem in America because of the extreme individualism we have in this country, much more so than many other countries of the world, Europe, whatever. And it's hard for us to look at things from a more corporate perspective than the rugged individual that we are trained to be from our earliest years. So the kind of question that comes up when someone is like this, this who does that sort of thing, is going to be hard to deal with because of the constant background noise we have about being rugged individuals in our society thinking we can take care of it ourselves rather than to trust God for what is right. I think it sounds like what that person was doing. They, they had in their head that they were helping, but <laughs> they weren't trusting God, obviously, yeah. or his fixing. I, I remember one time an incident that my grandfather told about a woman whose husband was gone and she was in the desert and she had some children and she was bit by a poisonous snake. And she decided that she had to kill her children because when she died, they wouldn't be able to take care of themselves. Well, it turned out the husband came home very soon after that and she had already done the deed. And we get this idea that we know what needs to be done, but it isn't our world. It's if we, if we trust God, he knows, he has a way to work things out for us. I'm just thinking too, in the early history of Christianity for the first 300 years, when it was a persecuted religion, you were an underground religion, basically. By becoming a Christian, even before you became a Christian, you knew what you were doing in terms of this could mean your life. And even today, I should say in the past hundred years, in terms of all the totalitarian governments, I'm thinking of the Soviet Union and Mao's China, and even today in North Korea and elsewhere, in some Muslim countries, becoming a Christian, an overt Christian, is almost 
a death sentence or it's a sentence that will involve a lot of persecution of you for the rest of your life. And yet some people feel that their trust, their, their faith, and I do mean the word faith, which means trust or confidence, their trust in God is so great that they understand that life is very short, but eternity is forever, and that they place their, their total hope in God being a merciful, a compassionate God, and knowing that something greater awaits them, and that is a true faith. Not that they're going to act crazily or, or whatever and what they do, but life is very precious. And they, of course, we all want to live as long as we can. But there are times when you may need to take a stand. And that may mean one's death. I'd like to make a recommendation. There's a book called All Saints by, I think, Robert Ellsberg. And it's A Saint a Day. But... It's wide ranging, like George Fox is in there and Dorothy Day, people who aren't classed as saints. But every day in there is a story of somebody who, who did that exactly, who had that much faith that they laid down everything. That's a good point, uh, Marilyn. The crucifixion of Jesus was an important example Thousands of people were being executed that way by the Romans over the years. Anyone who even looked like they were an insurrectionist or a terrorist or whatever would be executed in that fashion just because uh, you could not oppose the Roman government like that. They just would not allow anything like that. And so it could have said Jesus was just one more executed criminal. He was convicted of being an insurrectionist. Uh, on his cross, it said, you know, King of the Jews, which would have been clearly, this is why he was convicted, that he thought he was King of the Jews. No one was King of the Jews except Caesar, the emperor. And uh, you look at so many people that we know in history, as well as maybe all those we don't know, that we don't know their histories, but who've died mm -hmm. for a worthy cause. This has to do with how one understands God and whether there is something beyond our physical life. When I was in college, I was very much interested in geology and paleontology and just looking at the vastness of time. And it just seems that if you're lucky to live 70 years, 80, 90 years, that's not even a drop in the bucket in terms of the vastness of time. Same thing with the vastness of the universe. Billions and billions of galaxies and they're just trillions and trillions of stars. It's just so vast, and there's only one source, one creator of all of that. One could feel, one could think that maybe death is the end, but uh, there's something, I think, in so many religions of the world throughout history that feel that there's something afterwards. And what we as Christians understand is that there was some proof, clear proof of that, when God raised up Jesus after the crucifixion and death, that yes, you know, some people saw him, heard him, but it wasn't the same person because they didn't recognize him at times initially. He could come into a room that was a locked room. This allowed them to be no longer afraid of the authorities. And all 11 of the 12 apostles met their death violently from the Roman government. But it didn't matter. They believed in something. Their faith was so strong in something beyond that.
that's an important point. I think because I think without God raising up Jesus from the dead, Christian faith means nothing really. It's just a nice system of beliefs, like any philosophical system. Henry, I, I think that for the the martyrs and also for the Quakers, that their faithfulness and their obedience wasn't so much for the future reward after death, but it was that they kept the um, communication open between their hearts and God. And that was such a necessary uh, sense of life that they had in that reliance on God and that experience of the presence of God that to live without that would not have been life worth living. And that their faithfulness to what was right and righteous, the law in the heart, was really self-interest because their lives depended, their, their sense of joy in life or value in life was totally centered in that open relationship with God. And that to maintain that, they had to be, have an obedient response to God's will and incorporate it within them. And that gave them a sense of life that was more important than their physical life. And that's why they sustained it. Yes, this is basically entering into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God before one's death. Then there was the assumption it would continue after that. And I don't recall who... And I think it was maybe even more than one early Quaker said, even if there was no what others call afterlife, I've never seen a Quaker call it afterlife, early Quaker anyway, it didn't matter that they were doing the will of God now. And that is God rewards such behavior. However, he rewards it. It is rewarded. But that wasn't an important point. Uh, he, I mean, he rewards by revealing himself to us. Now, and that is a right. spirit of life. Yes. So this is eternal life. And, and that eternal life, as it is said in John, I'm blanking out on where it is. Eternal life is to know the God, 17, the Father, and thy Son. What, where? 17, 3. 17, right, 3. But I mean, that's the definition of eternal life, knowing. Again, that word knowing is experiencing, experiencing God. That's the greatest joy, the greatest happiness that there is in life. And that's the very first proposition of Barclay's 15 proposition is to experience God. I mean, even if it's just for a few seconds or whatever, but that's, that's the whole goal of one's spiritual life. We'll talk more about getting there in terms of righteousness at some other point. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, eternal life, life, all these words are synonyms for the same kind of understanding. And this is a very different understanding than most Christian denominations have about heaven or being something after you die. And that's not the sense Quakers have understood it. They've understood it, I think, more in line with what's really said there in the New Testament and the kind of revelation that was there. So, yeah, so I, I think Pat was saying basically the same thing. I should mention this. Pat's bringing up stuff I know, but I can't remember at the same moment <laughs> doing everything else. So it's kind of good for people to ask questions or bring out other things. Okay, let, let's, let's go on here again further a bit. The test laid down by the Savior of men, by their fruits shall ye know them. Well, this word Savior is related to the word save, S-A-V-E, and salvation. And all these words have to do with 
basically saving someone from something. And so often the sense in the New Testament is saving one from sin, from sinning, rescuing you from all the sinning you are just going to do if you just follow your natural animal inclinations. And the other sense of this at the same time that friends clearly understood, and one of the reasons why I was impressed of their deep understanding is the sense of healing. If you recall the woman who was healed of vaginal bleeding, at the very end, after she got healed, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Well, you can also translate those same words exactly from the original Greek, which is tongue twister. Your faith has saved you. You can also translate that as your trust, your confidence has healed you. This word healing and saving are, are basically synonymous. And this word savior was the term used by the Greek pagans to refer to the god of healing, Asclepius. They use that same term. So, but the healing is the healing of the rift between man and God. This seemingly impossible rift was broken so that there was a way to access God. But of course, the accessing of God is through righteousness, through being born again of the Spirit, no longer just following one's animal inclinations, but really looking at the world from a very different perspective with God's help and acting accordingly. Okay, they were concerned to warn all about this against the delusive notion that men might live in sin and in the indulgence of their carnal wills and appetites, their fleshly, their physical wills and appetites, and yet be saved by a professed dependence on what the Lord Jesus Christ has graciously done in his flesh for the redemption of mankind. I would say most Christians think and believe this, that Christ died for our sins, therefore we are saved. Well, that's not enough. That understanding, as I'm reading right here, is wrong, even though you find that from the great majority of Christians believing that, that just because Jesus died on the cross, that's all that needs to be done. No, the understanding is that Jesus is this exemplar of what we must do in terms of crucifying what in us is out of alignment with God. And that's the redemption of mankind. This word redeem is very interesting. Redeemer, redeem, redemption. In ancient Rome, a slave, if somehow he could get money from relatives or whatever, so often people became slaves because of wars or whatever. If he got money, he could, and he could buy his way out of his slavery. And that was redemption. He was redeeming himself, buying himself back out of slavery. And this is the slavery we're talking about here is the slavery to doing things out of the outside of the will of God, of sinning. And so this redemption is from sinning, being freed, freed or liberated. Uh, if you think of the word redeemer and redemption as a liberator and liberating, you get a much better sense of what's so often said there when those words are used. And that's being redeemed from one's evil inclinations, all the, the animal inclinations, proclivities, you name it. 
that we just follow our animal instincts. No, we are more than animals. And that's what's really being said here. And this is how Quakers have understood redemption. So just professing, these professors professing these Christian beliefs is not enough. And yet that's what so often you get. I think it's in Romans, they often quote something like Romans 10. Let me look. And what I'm doing here is pointing out the differences between Quaker beliefs and so much of other Christian Christian denominations here. Henry? Yes. While you're doing that, could you differentiate between what you're describing and Pelagianism? The heresy? Pelagianism. <clears throat> ah, Pelagius, huh? Well, uh, you want to talk about original sin, is that it? No, just the idea that who is the agent who is bringing the salvation? Like you're saying, hopefully, that God initiates this? Or are you saying that the person is fully responsible for being born again by looking at Jesus as an example and following that? Or are you saying this is like a partnership? Oh, okay. Well, in the formulation that friends use, which William Penn expresses specifically in the preface to George Fox's journal, the first step is this convincement, which meant conviction that in this first step of this transformation, this change, this metanoia, you are acknowledging that there's something wrong with you, that God has convicted you of your sin. You become aware that you aren't this person that you always thought you were. That's the first step. That can be very hard, very difficult, and for some people it may seem insurmountable. But that's where if you're allowing the light within, what we are calling the light of Christ, the light of the anointed one, that inward illumination to work on you further, you then come into position of turning to God. And this is the word conversion. Actually, that English word conversion goes back to a Latin word conversio, and the root of that means turning. You turn to God. This is a Jewish understanding. But there was a real emphasis on this in uh, early Christianity. And that's where you're turning to God with God's help, with, through Christ, as it would be said, through this anointing within you. And earlier, Tucker was talking about last week how the term Christ means the anointed one, Mashiach, the Messiah, that this anointing is in everyone as a seed. So often it's used as anointed one in a more personal way. But if you look at first epistle of John, the first letter of John in chapter 2, it uses it in a more neutral sense of the anointing within you. Actually, I should read that. Because this is what we're talking about here. I know we're, we're about finished, so let me... Okay, it's 227 here. I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, and these are, he's speaking, John speaking to the people in his group, his church, his congregation, those people in this house church or house churches. The anointing that you received from him abides in you, dwells in you. And so you do not need anyone to teach you because you have this God-given anointing in you. If you're aware of it and if you're attending to it and if you've changed yourself and become holy unadulterated, undefiled. 
you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in it or abide in him, dwell in him. So this is an important point among Quakers because that's why we don't have priests and the kinds of pastors and other structured kinds of positions in churches because these things are potentially in every human being. And we sometimes will acknowledge specific people who seem to have more of this sense and, and will then acknowledge them to be acknowledged ministers and acknowledged elder and then acknowledged overseer and recorded also is the word used. So that's where that goes. And finally, that third, where that leads to is a change and amendment of life, as William Penn says, that you change your life. So you're changing the way you have always acted. I don't know if I've answered that, Paul, or not. Maybe next, next week. Uh, Pat, Pat next did say week. something about Barclay saying something about it. Was it Proposition 7, I think? Yes? No, it's Proposition 8. eight, eight. The 10th okay. section. Yeah. Anyway, it's getting late now, so uh, any other qu final question on this? We're going to have to continue maybe another session or two with regard to this concise account because it covers so much. After that, I probably want to go into the role Holy Scripture and how Quakers have understood it, traditional conservative Quakers have understood the use of it and what it says and how it pertains to all of us. Any other comments? Okay. All right. Well, thank you, friends and visitors. Uh, hopefully, I'll see you all again next week. Thanks, Henry. Take care. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, Henry. Thank you. Thank you, friends. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. This podcast on the fundamentals of Conservative Friends' understandings has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. The words to our music are from Robert Barclay, quoted from his work, The Apology for the True Christian Divinity. The words were put to music and sung by Paulette Meyer, Paulette's CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com.